This is hell. Welcome to This is Hell Limbo Edition. This is board operator Dan. We're in limbo because beloved host Chuck Meritz is convalescing, but these are the last days of limbo. Chuck hosted yesterday's show, and if all goes according to plan, he'll be back next week full-time with new episodes. This is Outstanding News. But until then, the board ops are rounding out the week with hand-picked interviews from the vaults. I've lined up an interview with Kianga Yamada-Taylor this morning. But before we turn to that, I'd like to share with you this week's question from hell. This week's question from hell is, what are you replacing white people with? The racist crackpot great replacement theory is in the news, so we're asking... What are you replacing white people with? Head on over to facebook.com slash thisishellradio and submit your answer. We'll read it on air. And at the end of the week, the very best answer will be rewarded with some merch from our online store, which you can get by going to thisishell.com and clicking support. I'll be reading some of your answers from this week's question from hell right after the interview. In 2019, Chuck spoke with activist and scholar Kianga Yamada-Taylor about racism in the American real estate industry. She had just published a book, Race for Profit. In this, she outlined how legislation outlawing racist practices like redlining only gave way to new forms of discrimination and extraction, which she terms predatory inclusion. So let's turn now to Chuck in 2019, interviewing Kianga Yamada-Taylor. This is hell. Real estate is a racist industry that leads to unfair loans to African Americans on properties that are crumbling with absolutely no risk to the lender, causing a cycle of lending, repair, decay, foreclosure, only to repeat the same process over and over again as the industry profits. Here to help us understand the horrible racist history of real estate returning to this is hell kianga yamada taylor is author of the new book race for profit how banks and the real estate industry undermine black home ownership welcome back to this is hell kianga Thanks so much. Very happy to be here and join you. <laughs> you can follow Kianga on Twitter at Kianga Yamada. You write the widespread access to home ownership across the United States in the aftermath of World War II cemented it as a fundamental feature of the cultural conceptions of citizenship and belonging. This was especially true for African Americans. Indeed, the very first civil rights bill to be enacted in 1886 tethered the right to purchase property to freedom and citizenship. And you continue this American 
particularity of property rights as an expression of citizenship was reinforced in the 1948 landmark Shelley v. Kramer decision that affirmed, quote, equality in the enjoyment of property rights was regarded as an essential precondition to the realization of other basic civil rights and liberties. Why the prioritization of property rights? How do property rights lead to other civil rights and liberties? Um, I think that you know, in a society such as, as ours, um, private property has been held up as a, a kind of gateway to autonomy and social liberty. And for some people, it has functioned that way. But private property and property ownership does not exist in a vacuum. And in this country where access to property to property, property ownership is mediated um, by is mediated by uh, the market. I think that that becomes uh, the troubles begin. Uh, the free market is um, held up as this kind of race blind, color neutral space that dictates um, how the market functions. But in reality. Um, you know, the market is us. And so the market, uh, all of the kinds of racial prejudice that uh, pulsate through our society, in which that has meant that uh, African-Americans haven't had the same access to uh, private property uh, as other people in this country. You write this unprecedented public-private partnership in the production of low-income housing, tethered HUD and FHA to real estate brokers, mortgage bankers, and home builders. These partnerships were troubled from their inception because of the real estate industry's long history of racial discrimination against and demonization of African Americans as unfit owners and detrimental to property values. So the real estate industry had a history of racism. So the U.S. goes into a partnership with racist real estate and racist outcomes occur, which should not be surprising. To what extent can government policy change an industry from being racist from the get-go? Well, it really can't unless there is some commitment to do so. And so part, I mean, there, there are many tangled issues here. One is, you know, there there's the big, I don't know if people have seen this, I don't know if you've seen this, but uh, there was big expose published in Newsday uh, newspaper, which is a Long Island daily, um, Long Island, New York. Uh, and so it came out to great fanfare a couple of days ago um, that shows how real estate agents are uh, uh, engaged in discriminatory practices. This is an undercover newspaper investigation over a three-year period. And they found that 19% of the times Asian American prospective home buyers were discriminated against and something like 30% of the time Latino uh, prospective homeowners were discriminated against, and 49% of the time, black homeowners were discriminated uh, against. You know, cause real estate operatives have uh, an interest in maintaining a exclusive white housing market, um, and you know, fitting other people in in other neighborhoods uh, uh, around that. And so, if you have these private sector actors. <clears throat> who are deeply invested in uh, segregation and racism because it actually builds their bottom line, um, then it's, you know, it's very difficult uh, for 
government who then goes into partnership with these uh, institutions and uh, agents and organizations to be able to effectively uh, police them. And why is it difficult to police them is because the federal government has outsourced its entire housing program to the private sector. And so when the federal government is utterly dependent um, on the private sector to produce all housing, then it has no other alternative. It has stripped itself from that alternative. The federal government doesn't uh, build, develop, or manage any housing. And so it is completely dependent on the private sector. And because of that relationship, it really makes it impossible for the federal government to effectively police it. And so that's why we have seen for 50 years after the passage of the Fair Housing Act, that the the number one problem that the U.S. government has is a failure to enforce its own civil rights rules and regulations. Why doesn't it enforce it? Because it is dependent on the private sector to produce housing. And so really the way to get uh, from beneath this relationship means reassigning a predominant role in the production of housing, in the management and building uh, of housing to the public sector, to the public. Um, and without that, uh, we won't be able to escape this uh, dilemma. There has not been a single time in the entirety of the 20th century when real estate became one of the most powerful sections of uh, sectors of the U.S. economy that the real estate industry, whether it's brokers, builders, or bankers have not relied on racial discrimination to enhance its bottom line. And it's not just a historical relic. These are practices that continue to this very day, and they're able to continue because the federal government has no commitment to enforcing civil rights law. There were two things that I found odd about the coverage of the Newsday story. Not the Newsday story uh-huh. itself. The Newsday story was fantastic. The two things that I found really odd, well, one is because I was reading your book, that that would be breaking news, that finding out that there is racial discrimination within real estate would be breaking news. That shocked me. And then the second thing that shocked me is then you didn't see this breaking news on any of the networks, on any of the cable right. outlets. What does that tell you? about media coverage when it comes to racial discrimination, in particular in housing? Well, I think it's the first thing that you said that, oh, is that news? I mean, that that's just another day in the real estate industry. Um, and so in, in that sense, you know, I think this is a kind of cynical view that this this is just this is a regular uh, this is a regular practice that um, is taken for granted. And everyone knows it's taken, you know, everyone knows this. All you have to do is walk around a major metropolitan area, walk around, you know, any city, uh, major city, smaller city that, that people live in around this country. And you know uh, that residential segregation still exists. And how do we get to residential segregation? Well, it begins with the real estate broker. Um, and so I think that there's a kind of, uh, expectation or knowledge about that in ways that would prevent, um, you know, the the mainstream media from uh, reporting on this as a as a consequential uh, event because I think everyone just assumes that this is what uh, that this is what goes on and that it's actually not breaking news and so you know why 
carve out any space or time to actually talk about it. Did giving black Americans access to home ownership then, did it simply open up a new way for white profiteers to exploit black Americans? And was that intentional? Was that its point? So this is, you know, a big question that I try to uh, talk about um, with the book, which is how does uh, the end of redlining, which happens in the late 1960s, 1967 and 1968, um, just give way to more uh, and different kinds of exploitative real estate um, practices. And I try to take up this question because I think most of us are conditioned to believe that the way that you solve problems of exclusion uh, is simply by turning to inclusion. I mean, that is the narrative um, around race in this country uh, when it comes to civil rights, that black people have been denied basic rights. They have been excluded from um, the rights and governing institutions of this country. And the way that we repair that uh, is to include them. And the problem with this is that it doesn't actually take into uh, account what are you being included into. Uh, it takes as an assumption that the problems that we face in this country are not systemic, um, that they are simply questions of access, that essentially the U.S. is a sound society, um, that its, its mechanisms work, uh, its institutions work, um, and that all that is lacking is people's access to those institutions and mechanisms. And so I'm looking at um, somewhat narrowly the question of housing and how that fits into uh, the equation. And the question of housing is a very uh, critical one. In the 60s, it produced landmark legislation with the Fair Housing Act in 1968. Uh, it also uh, produced a landmark Supreme Court case that most people don't know about, Jones versus Mayer in 1968. So housing was not inconsequential as a place where people believed if black people could just be included into this apparatus, then it could produce the same kinds of outcomes that uh, housing availability, home ownership did uh, for white people um, in the 1940s and 50s. And so the problem, though, is that simply changing the law did not change the previous decades, several decades, uh, patterns of racial discrimination, a period in which the ideas about uh, blacks as neighbors, as homeowners, um, potentially homeowners, as as residents in uh, uh, cities um, was not deeply distorted by uh, discriminatory um, practices that uh, left African-Americans segregated, isolated in urban communities where the housing was often uh, dilapidated and substandard, not because of black people there, but because the housing was old. It wasn't a new housing that had become available for white people um, in the suburbs. And so by the time that the practices of redlining by the federal government are banned by law, um, the conditions of black communities that had been built up over time because of segregation uh, become the new evidence um, to welcome them into conventional real estate practices, but by other discriminatory um, means, meaning that if you lived in a neighborhood that 
looked risky as a place to risk in terms of, you know, is this a good investment? Will a house appreciate over time? Uh, should someone who lives in a neighborhood like this, do we trust that they will repay uh, a loan? Um, and so the decisions around that uh, are dictated by the conditions in those neighborhoods, which lead uh, conventional real estate uh, practices to uh, charging people more for loans or offering different kinds of uh, loans that incorporate these ideas uh, of risk, which in the end leave African-Americans still vulnerable um, to predatory practices. And so just changing the law without repairing the damage that had been done his historically um, to create those inequalities in the first place only meant that black people would now be vulnerable uh, to new kinds of discriminatory practices um, as, as opposed to what had happened previously. You write the paucity of oversight in the housing market deeply ingrained with the belief that the black population needed to be contained or segregated to preserve property values for white homeowners, combined with unprecedented federal dollars and a mandate to produce more units of housing than ever in history, was a recipe for nefarious business practices. Was this process then, more than anything, simply about maintaining white supremacy and privilege? Um, I think, no. I mean, I think the overall... Uh, sometimes it's difficult to um, ferret that out. I think the overall objective um, was profiteering and to make as much money as uh, as possible and leveraging the influence and uh, authority of the federal government um, to do so. Um, and so, of course, by way of that, um, the, the structures of white supremacy are uh, reinforced. The uh, white, uh, exclusive white housing market um, becomes even more exclusive and more valuable. Uh, and the perceptions of uh, black housing and black neighborhoods uh, deteriorates greatly, which, of course, also um, adds to the value of uh white neighborhoods, the further that they are from black people um, and the perceived dysfunctional black city, uh, the more these homes grow um, in value. And so I think this is the, the function uh, of real estate. If we think about the, the objective of real estate is to buy low and sell high, um, you know, that they are able to uh, kind of wield that dynamic and attach it to uh, concepts of race in our society uh, that essentially then reinforce racial segregation um, and the reinforcement of racial segregation uh, obviously then reinforces uh, racial stereotypes and misconceptions and distortions um, about uh, African-Americans, many of which uh, these distorted ideas about black people are rooted in um, the conditions that African-Americans are living in uh, throughout the course of the, the 20th century. And those conditions um, are have a great deal to do with the practices of uh, real estate, um, which for most of the 20th century worked to reinforce the color line um, in, in metropolitan areas, uh, dividing cities uh, from suburbs, and then even within cities, dividing uh, black neighborhoods from uh, other uh, neighborhoods in the city. 
After, you write that after several decades of refusing to guarantee the mortgages of African-Americans or those who lived in close proximity to them, the FHA charted a new path. With the passage of the 1968 Housing and Urban Development Act, HUD Act, new provisions were made to encourage low-income homeownership. After years of partisan jousting over the creation, placement, and management of public housing programs, President Lyndon Johnson t- turned to the market to solve the perennial housing crisis that had plagued American cities since at least World War II. To what extent was there a housing crisis? Oh, there was a there was an intense um, housing shortage, you know, which in the lives of regular people who are in search of housing uh, constitutes a crisis. Um, the the problem, it, you know, and I've, I've criticized this use of uh, crisis um in terms of talking about the dearth of safe, sound, and affordable housing, um, and that we really need to think of it more as a chronic problem. Crisis indicates that this is a breach from the norm, um, but the norm has actually been housing shortages. And so I think that, again, the private sector has consistently flexed its influence in housing policy um, since housing policy became uh, came into existence in the 1930s um, with a single refrain of stopping the federal government from competing against the private sector. So private sector real estate forces undermine public housing because they don't want government-backed housing to, com- to compete with the private rental or uh, ownership market, um, the the public uh, the the private sector uh, has consistently kind of flexed its influence in public policy uh, in ways uh, to bend those policies uh, that in ways that benefit the, the 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 private sector, and so this is part of why. Um, there never seems to be any kind of plan uh, around housing and how we end up with this vast mismatch between housing need and demand and the uh, existence of uh, housing that is affordable uh, for people. Um, Housing is one of those things that, you know, when it has a price on it, People have to pay anything because you have to have shelter uh, to survive as a species. Um, And that means that there's a wild disconnect between uh, the price and cost of housing uh, and what people can actually afford but are made to pay for um, anyway. And so, if anything, that's the crisis. But a function of uh, housing under capitalism, it's not a breach with the norm. It is the norm. You write advocates proselytize the virtues of ownership, including the creation of stakeholders within otherwise distressed communities. They suggested that the efficiency and speed with which business could produce housing would finally end the perennial scarcity of good urban housing. Private property then not only could solve the housing crisis, but was presented more broadly as a palliative to an urban crisis that had metastasized into annual riots and rebellions throughout the 1960s. Was there an urban crisis that needed to be addressed? Well, urban, there are many different iterations of urban crisis. What does that mean? In the the early uh, 1960s or the late 1950s, it was uh, urban uh, congestion, it was slum housing, 
um, and it was the kind of fodder for expanding urban renewal practices. Um, by the middle 60s, urban crisis comes to mean uh, the black rebellions that are sweeping uh, across the country. You know, by the end of 1968, uh, more than 500,000 African Americans have participated in urban uprisings of one sort um, or another. And so, you know, by the 1970s, urban crisis takes on yet uh, a new meaning, um, which has to do with uh, perceptions of concentrated poverty, joblessness, um, and a, a general kind of uh, blight and um, uh, broken down static condition um, in cities. There was what could be uh, construed as, as crisis, but uh, turning people who lived in those areas of uh, distress and that they were distressed because of decades of disinvestment, because of decades of uh, racist um, public policy, uh, was not to then turn everyone into an individual uh, homeowner within that context. Uh, it was to uh, infuse massive amounts of investment and capital um, into those areas uh, that could lead to uh, both job development and um, also community development, to build new housing, to build uh, safe, sound, and affordable housing. I mean, those were uh, the types of programs that were needed to intervene in places that that were in a, uh, a state of crisis. But that crisis was caused by the actions of the federal government itself. You write that in the strange mathematics of racial real estate, black people paid more for the inferior condition of their housing. They refer to this costly differential as a race tax. And you've touched on this mm -hmm. a, bit, a bit already, but how do black Americans pay more for worse housing than the nice housing that, that relatively white people have? It's because of segregation, that when you have a captured market, um, then it forces the price of black housing up and the quality of black housing uh, down. Um, and so this book is about the late 1960s and early um, 70s. And, you know, people should be clear that during this time period, um, there is still an incredible amount of vitriol and violence directed at African-Americans who dared uh, to breach the color line um, in cities, uh, mostly in in suburban areas um, during that time. So I, you know, I write about uh, African Americans in Hempstead, Long Island, um, who are firebombed, um, who receive a pipe bomb in their in their home. Um, black people who try to in Cleveland who try to move into the uh, Shaker Heights sub suburb who are bombed. Um, and so, you know, the the bounds of segregation are not just uh, hypothetical or, you know, oh, do you want a black neighbor or not? Um, these are violently uh, maintained uh, racial boundaries. Um, and when you have that kind of boundary, when landlords and property owners know that African-Americans are largely a captured audience, captured market, when the federal government has absolutely no serious commitment to enforcing its own rules and regulations concerning civil rights law, um, then you end up paying more for 
uh, worse conditions um, in in housing. And when we talk about enforcement, it's important to know that, you know, as early as 1969, HUD is empowered to create a civil rights division um, in housing, and they do so. And they are given a budget by the U.S. Congress for $6 million, $5 million of which is to go to um, staffing, which leaves $1 million for 120 employees uh, to weed out all acts and complaints of racial discrimination in housing in the United States. So on its face, there's no commitment to enforcing uh, the law regarding uh, racial discrimination, even understanding the history of what had the only reason the U.S. got a fair housing bill is because Martin Luther King was murdered. So fair housing had cycled through Congress in 1965, in 1966, in 1967, and it was on its way through another cycle in 1968 when Martin Luther King uh, was assassinated and riots broke out in uh, you know hundreds of cities around the country. And it was only because of that that seven days later, uh, Lyndon Johnson was finally able to sign uh, fair housing into law. And even then, it was done with almost no enforcement, serious enforcement powers. So it relied on what it called uh, mediation and conciliation. And actually what you need, what kinds of enforcement powers that are necessary are behavior-altering punishment for engaging in illegal racist practices. Business breaking fines, right, this is the only way you will actually get the attention of the private sector and transform uh, its behavior. But why don't we do that? Because that's, that's not rocket science. That's not a complicated thing to come up with. It's because it, the U.S. government has no commitment to that. They understand the white people primarily who are in charge of this dis decision making understand how sacrosanct property values are. And property values in this country are contingent on the isolation of black people and the uh, isolation of white people. And so because of that calculus and dynamic, that's why we don't get enforcement, not because no one has ever thought of this before. You also point out that given the dueling objectives of different sectors within the real estate industry, federal regulators in HUD, newly empowered to this role by the Fair Housing Act as the Civil Rights Act of 1968 came to be known, would have to take responsibility for implementing the new legislation in fair and equitable ways. By 1968, though, the federal and local governments had a poor record of enforcing the fair housing laws already on the books. Did the real estate industry, did the market undo the victories of the Civil Rights Act? Do we not have the civil rights, the civil rights? Act promised because of the real estate industry and its pursuit of profits? Yes. <laughs> and it's not, I mean, I should say that it's not just, um, you know, private sector bad, federal government bad sometimes, good sometimes. It's not that. It's, to me, it's understanding the relationship between the two, um, the, the constant efforts to bring the private sector together uh, with the public sector to create um, policies. And the reason I think this is because there is a very basic elemental uh, disconnect between those two. The public sector exists to protect the public's interest and the public's welfare. 
that's the reason why there is a uh, social welfare aspect to the public sector. It develops over time, certainly in the 1920s during the progressive era, uh, and then most clearly in the 1930s uh, with the New Deal. And so that's one set of objectives. For the private sector in real estate, their objective is to make money. And that's, that's not a pejorative statement. That's not a demeaning statement. That's just reality. It doesn't matter if you like it, don't like it. It's it, inconsequential. That's what it's there for. Buy low, sell high, make your money, turn a profit. Those two things, public welfare, public interest, make a profit, they don't work together. And so every time we try to jam the square peg of public policy and public interest into the, the square hole of the private sector's profiteering, it doesn't work. Um, and so that relationship to me is the problem because we keep combining the public and private sectors together to create policies that inevitably end up bending to the will of the private sector because the state slowly offshoots its responsibilities to the private sector as it divests itself from servicing that role. And that really, the relationship between the two is at the heart of the problem. We have been speaking with Kianga Yamada-Taylor. She is author of Race for Profit, How Banks and the Real Estate Industry Undermine Black Home Ownership. Kianga is assistant professor of African-American studies at Princeton University, and she's also a columnist at Jacobin. She was on our show back in March of 2016 to talk about her previous book, From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation and How We Get Free, Black Feminism and the Combahee River Collective. And you can find that interview at our website, thisishell.com. One last question for you, Kianga, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response, which is where I think this one will lie. You quote historian Arnold Hirsch writing, the rise of second ghettos in the post-war era and the suburban boom were organically linked. You add a white housing market would have actually been unintelligible without its black counterpart. Both relied on the other to become legible. So, How responsible are white suburbs for dilapidated black neighborhoods? Is the reason black neighborhoods may be in a distressed state because white suburbs exist? More importantly, are white suburbanites complicit in racial discrimination in the real estate market simply by moving to the suburbs? So I will I will say that, yes, there are. All too often, people have thought about these as dual and distinct uh, housing markets. And so I argue against that in this book and say that, no, they're actually intimately uh, connected in the same way that, you know, in a place like Chicago, where I lived for a long time, I used to reject the framework of, oh, we're in, we live in two cities. There, Chicago is a tale of two cities. No, Chicago is about one city. Downtown, the business district looks the way that it does because the west side and parts of the south side look the way that they do. Those two things are uh, connected. And it's the same with the housing uh, market. The, the, the uh, efforts of the federal government to you know, restart the economy after the Depression and the post-war era uh, by making everyone white people homeowners in suburban areas has a direct connection to the disinvestment 
uh, in African-American communities because they made that possible through the use of mortgage insurance and telling banks, lend money to everyone that you can. And if they go into foreclosure, we'll pay the debt off. So banks, no more risk for you. There's no risk at all. You do what you want to do on the condition that the homeowners are of a homogenous group and that the housing is new in the suburbs. So that meant white people in suburbs will get their housing subsidized by the government. If you live in the city, you will not. So there's a through line that connects the development of suburban areas to uh, the disinvestment um, and the underdevelopment uh, of black communities in cities. And so I think that the federal government in collusion with the banking industry uh, set this dynamic up. So I think, you know, it's, it's, it's not the same in terms of uh, what individual white homeowners decide to do. Uh, when you have these huge institutional forces setting uh, the groundwork, uh, creating the conditions within which we must, you know, choose to uh, live in one part or, or the other, it's hard to reduce that down to individual uh, behavior. And I don't, I don't necessarily, I don't particularly think that uh, it's, it's necessary. But what I do think is important uh, to draw attention to is the collaborative relationship between uh, the public sector and the private sector uh, forced these decisions onto people. And of course, you know, in a country that has no social welfare state, in a country where your ability uh, to unleash social mobility uh, is determined by your individual efforts to personally accumulate wealth, with owning a house being the primary way to do that, then it adds an intensity to protecting property values because your home and whether or not you are the owner of a home that is a, an appreciating asset uh, determines much about the quality of your life um, in this country. And that is historically is what has made uh, white people hysterical uh, about protecting their housing values because it is their own personal welfare state uh, in a country where we have no welfare state and are really guaranteed nothing. And so everything is on the individual uh, uh, to 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 search out and finance um, in their in their lives. And this creates an enormous amount uh, of pressure on protecting the, the 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 home at all costs. And so, you know, individuals didn't necessarily set this this system up, uh, but the federal government and its private sector partners uh, did. And we need to disconnect those two if we're going to ever get serious about dealing with the incredible lack of available housing um, that is actually affordable for people in this country. And that is probably the best question from hell answer that we have had in a really long time. And I really do think, as you point out in your book over and over again, that we really need to disabuse ourselves of this ourselves of this idea that's often embraced in the mainstream media that public-private partnerships are the best way to go because it's the best of both possible worlds. So we really need to stop thinking that way because the private part of it always makes it a very unequal relationship. Kianga, I really appreciate you being Absolutely. back on our show, and uh, you have an open invitation to be on our show whenever you want. So please, we will stay in contact with you and annoy you for the rest of your life. I hope you enjoy all of the interview requests that we send you. <laughs> all right. Take care. Thank uh, you so much. I definitely. All right. And get, get over okay. that. Get over Bye. that cold. Get over that cold. I know. I know. It's terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> all right. Take care. 
This is Board Op Dan on Tuesday morning in Westridge, and that was Chuck in 2019 speaking with activist and scholar Kianga Yamada-Taylor about the changing face of racial discrimination in the American real estate industry. That was an excellent interview. It made clear that it's not as simple as just flipping a switch from exclusion to inclusion to repair the damage of segregation caused by redlining. There are systemic factors conspiring against African Americans in America, and under those conditions, incorporating African Americans more fully into the system of home lending, in fact, has some harmful effects. Kianga also gave good examples of the mechanisms of racialized capitalism. She talked about racism creating value under capitalism through property values. So in its current form, at least, capitalism appears to require racism rather than it just being, say, a side effect of income, income, income inequality. So I'm glad we were able to listen to that together. I really enjoyed it. All right. Let's listen. Let's read some answers to this week's question from hell. Remember, this week's question from hell is, what are you replacing white people with? You can give your own answer at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Fabio A. is replacing white people with, I can't believe it's not white people. Egon S. says, a few sheets of printer paper ought to do it. Zach N. says, off-white people. Mark A. says, rabid wolverines. They're more friendly. Ray O. says, books about white people. So we can just read about and not have to listen to them anymore. And Warren L. says self-checkout kiosks. Man, I hate those things. I'll leave the rest for Lindsay tomorrow. If you want to submit your own answer, as I said, you can go to facebook.com slash thisishellradio. At the end of the week, we'll choose the best answer and get them some merch. Tomorrow, Lindsay will be playing another Hit from the Vaults. I'm not sure which one just now. But on Thursday, Sebastian will play an interview with Ben Ehrenreich about whiteness, its invention, its utility, and its danger. And he'll have an all-new moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff tries to convince the masses that Nazism is bad. That'll be good. I enjoyed playing a classic This Is Hell episode for you this morning. I'll be back next week, by which time, with any luck at all, Chuck will be back in the driver's seat. Until then. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, Visit thisishell.com.